Chapter 4. White Settlement Influences In the late 1700s, Britain was expanding its colonial empire across the globe. Food was scarce, crime was rife and jails were full. In addition, the threat of a revolution was brewing and very much a reality in neighbouring France. A decision was made to offshore the problem to one of the colonies. Captain James Cook had discovered Australia almost two decades earlier in 1770, and it was deemed a suitable candidate as a penal settlement. The first fleet, captained by Arthur Phillip, arrived in Australia in 1788 with 1,500 men, women, children. Of those, 800 were convicts. The settlement was waiting on the arrival for the second fleet from Britain, hoping for fresh supplies. But instead they were met with despair as many on board had died en route. Those who survived on shore died soon after from scurvy, dysentery and other diseases. The food was full of maggots and rotten. The British settlement was in dire threat of collapsing. James Ruse, a convict serving the last two years of a five-year sentence for stealing a watch, was a farmer in the Cornwall and asked to try and farm the land close to the settlement. He attempted to grow corn but failed twice until he changed his approach and planted the winter time, which was the opposite season to when it was planted in Britain. As a reward, he was given 30 acres of land, the first person and a convict to be given land to farm. This saved the colony, and an attitude among white Australians of resilience and optimism was born. In 1804, the first industry for trade was established in seals. Seals were traded not only for their fur, which was used for clothing, shoes and trimmings for hats back in Britain, but also for oil needed to light lamps. The whaling trade also developed at this time, Unscrupulous Americans tried to muscle in on the seal industry, but without success due to the mateship that had already developed between the small numbers, primarily recent released convicts, in the settlement. John Morrall was a survivor in the Second Fleet and drove the success of the seal trade in southern Australia. And when attacked by the American sealers, mates from the area came to his aid to fight them off. Looking out for your mates and mateship have a long and enduring roots in the Australian white settlement history. A few years after the battle for Parramatta was won in 1807, more settlers arrived, growing the settlement to 3,000. Rum was used to buy and sell everything. One particular man, John Davis, became wealthy through his rum trade. He built a house on the land that wasn't his, and Governor Bly attempted to destroy it and take back the land. With the help of John McCarthy and George Johnson, officers in the British League, they challenged the vision of Australia as a dumping ground for convicts and an endless basket of resources to feed the insatiable appetite of the rich in England. And Bly is overthrown and forced out of the country. Johnson becomes governor, returns to England, but is allowed to keep his money from the rum trade and return to the Australian officially as governor. The confidence to challenge authority, which was not the norm back in the UK, as it was equivalent to treason, was something that became commonplace whenever British authority tried to flex their muscles and assert control over the colonial settlers in Australia. The desire to challenge British authority is synonymous as a teenager not accepting the boundaries imposed by their parents, and this salient characteristic continues to shape Australian political landscape even today, with a healthy disrespect for those in government, as well with bosses with the workplace who haven't earned the respect of the workforce through competent and inclusive leadership. This can be confronting for new migrants to Australia, especially from Asian countries, as respect for authority is core to their cultural beliefs. The anti-authority theme continued with the infamous mutiny, 
the taking of the Frederick ship by a mob of dishevelled yet highly organised convicts in Tasmania in 1834, and continued throughout the gold rush period, which culminated in the Eureka Stockade in 1854, the miners' pursuit of democratic rights to a fair go in the gold fields. The Crown was demanding costly prospecting licences to gain the right to dig rather than paying tax on the gold was, was discovered. The diggers unified and led by an Irishman, John Hines, burnt their licences and fought British soldiers. Many died, but not in vain, as this led to all men over the age of 21 not just owning land, as was the case in Britain, gaining the right to vote. This was the first democracy in the world. This was a defining moment in Australia's white settlement history, and one that cemented the cultural characteristics of freedom, challenging authority, the fair go for all, honesty and mateship that unifies us as a nation today. In the goldfields of Victoria, from the first 250-gram gold nugget found by the lucky Irishman James Edsmond, 200,000 tonnes of gold were discovered and mined. In today's currency, that is equivalent to $10 billion. A third of the world's gold was coming from country Victoria by the mid-1850s. Gold was also discovered in Coolgardie, Western Australia, by yet another lucky Irishman, Paddy Hannon, in 1893. The Kalgoorlie geological formation in Western Australia was also discovered, bringing more prospectors, but also big miners with equipment to dig underground, and with it bringing workers at the fortuitous time when work was becoming scarce in Victoria and the economy quickly becoming depressed. The gold seam and pit is still being mined today. With all this gold around, some people thought it would be easier just to steal it rather than use up the energy and time digging it up. In 1862, Frank Gardner did just this and became notorious around Australia for pulling off the biggest gold robbery by ambushing a stagecoach that carried 100 kilograms of gold in broad daylight. He and his gang robbed before, and this was just his last heist. Legend today suggests that the gold was so heavy that they had to bury it, and it is still somewhere up in the hill near Forbes, New South Wales. Gardner got away with the robbery, and he was smart enough to escape to America and live to be an old man. There are some reports that his two sons made a visit back to the area sometime later. Australia's most notorious bushranger, Ned Kelly, another Irishman recognisable for the protective metal armour he wore, became a legend in Australian history for his bold robberies. He was viewed as a Robin Hood by some, taking from the rich to give to the poor. But to the police, he was a murderer, thief and criminal. Originally a horse thief, the authorities placed his mother in prison for crimes of her sons, and some say in retaliation forged ahead as a dangerous criminal as payback to the authorities, which once again shows the anti-authority sentiment which still features in our culture today. The first feature film in the world was made in Australia about Ned Kelly, called The Story of the Kelly Gang, which screened in 1906. Plays, poems, books, novels, paintings, songs, museum exhibits and other films have been created about the infamous Ned Kelly over the decades and continues to this day. When the gold fever cooled, wool became the next commodity to burst onto the international trade scene. Lamb was already feeding the nation, and it was the wool on the backs of sheep that was in hot demand in Europe, especially to clothe the exploding populations in the depths of the cold and freezing winters. The growth in sheep was exponential, from 1,000 head of sheep in 1801 to 100,000 in 1820 
to over 1 million in 1830, to 4 million by 1840, to 16 million by 1850, and 17 million by 1980. There were 40 sheep per head of population. Today it's about 6 sheep per head of population. With the wealth gained from the wool, the workers started to demand better work conditions and a greater slice of the pie. Many skilled and unskilled labourers joined unions. This grew to a head in 1890 when the maritime strike occurred which meant nothing could be loaded or unloaded at the wharves. This had a detrimental effect on the economy and people's quality of life. Coal supplies ran out, there were no lights, industries shut down and people couldn't cook food. The business owners decided to push through and load the wharves and the workers fought but lost. The unions were crushed. But a new way of dealing with employers and employees, conflicts is born. Arbitration, which is a little like having a referee on a sports team. They say what is fair and not fair, point out where lines have been crossed and keep the ball rolling. This laid the foundation for a minimum wage of all workers, which is a concept and policy which still exists today. Up until the late 1800s, Australia was a group of individual colonies and settlements each governed separately. But with the growth in population, there was a need to break down barriers for trade between states, to have telecommunications linking the whole country, to unify the defence and immigration. Tasmanian politician Andrew Inglis Clark was instrumental in developing Australia's constitution. He was an admirer of the American Republic and its Bill of Rights. Although we see this influence in terms of liberty and freedom, some elements are very different, such as the right to bear arms in the American Constitution, which has allowed Australia to have strict gun laws around ownership. Samuel Griffith, a skilled lawyer, also contributed greatly, as did Alfred Deakin, an orator who became Prime Minister from 1903 to 1910. Over a 10-year period, a draft constitution was written. It went to a referendum and then to Britain for approval. Charles Kingston, who represented South Australia, Edmund Barton, who later became Australia's first Prime Minister, and Samuel Griffith boarded the Lucinda in Sydney Harbour on July 9, 1890. Queen Victoria gave her royal assent, making the Australian Constitution law. Australia became a federation. Initially, the capital of Australia was set in Melbourne, but it moved to location halfway between Sydney and Melbourne to deem it fair. Hence, Canberra became the capital instead. Australians have fought in numerous wars, from the Boer War in Africa, 1899 to 1902, to World War I, 1914 to 1918, and World War II, 1939 to 1945, including Kokoda, 1942 to 1943, Korea, 1950 to 1953, Malaysia Emergency Relief, 1950 to 1960, Vietnam, 1962 to 1973, the Gulf War, 1990 to 1991, Iraq, 2003 to 2009, Afghanistan, 2001 to 2012, to the current and ongoing war in terror against the Islamic State. Many Australians fought in World War I, 1914 to 1918, and many died, 8,709 Australians and 2,779 New Zealanders. More than any other country per capita, including many female nurses on the front line, many Australians volunteered and served in World War I to protect their lucky way of life and to show their allegiance to Britain in the fight against Germany's desired dominance over the world. One such soldier, Private William Edward Singh, colloquially known as Billy, was a half-Chinese-Australian who became famous for his skill as a sniper in World War I. He was feared by the Turks. 
He learned to shoot on his family's property in Claremont, central western Queensland. He never missed a kangaroo and could even shoot piglets' tails off at 25 metres. There was some concern initially to recruit him as he was not fully white, but this was overlooked as his skill was exemplary. He survived the war and returned to Australia as a hero with a superstar status for saving so many lives of his fellow Australians. Author John Hamilton published the book Gallipoli Sniper, The Life of Billy Singh and Australians. A monument stands today in the West End of Brisbane honouring this war hero. It reads, Let us be grateful that Billy Singh was one of ours. There was no greater honour than looking out for your mates and laying the seeds for multicultural Australia. Another war hero, uncharacteristic as he didn't fight in the war, was Keith Murdoch, father of Rupert Murdoch, an international business tycoon with powerful media interests and multiple marriages, the most recent to a Chinese woman, Wendy Ding. Keith also looked out for his mates. At the request of the Australian Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher, Murdoch was sent to check the problems in the mail system. Murdoch was shocked by what he witnessed, a high death toll and the incompetence of the commanding officers. He was adamant that he wanted to get the information to those in higher positions. He attempted to deliver a letter from Ellis Ashmead Bartlett, veteran British war correspondent at the British Prime Minister, but was intercepted. He committed the contents of the letter to memory and rewrote it as a story on the ship back to London. On return, he posted the letter to the Australian Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher. He responded immediately. The general in charge, Sir Ian Hamilton, was sacked for his incompetence and within two months, Allied forces were withdrawn from Gallipoli. Once again, this anti-authority attitude and look out for your mates value prevailed. And if Keith had not done what he did, thousands more would have perished in Gallipoli. Anzac, Australian and New Zealand forces at Gallipoli, is celebrated each year in Australia in remembrance of the brave Australian and New Zealanders who fought for our freedom in World War I. It has become very much part of who we are, and Anzac Day, which is a public holiday, is an opportunity for people to reflect on the Anzac spirit. Australians fought in World War II, 1939-1945, once again to combat Germany's threat of supremacy. Troops were withdrawn from Europe when Japan showed their desire to invade Australia, but it was America who came to Australia's aid during World War II, not England. Australian and American forces fought to battle against the Japanese in Japanese-occupied Singapore and Papua New Guinea. Japanese bombed Sydney and Newcastle, but it was the Kokoda Trail, a 97-kilometre stretch of formidable mountains in Papua New Guinea, where brave Australians fought the brutal Japanese and ultimately stopped the invasion of Australia by the Japanese. The local Papua New Guineans supported the Australian soldiers as carriers, hauling ammunition and supplies, and bringing back wounded on improvised stretches. They became affectionately known as Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels. Australia lost 2,000 soldiers and many young men fought courageously. Private Bruce Kingsbury and the Corporal John French posthumously were awarded the Victoria Cross for their outstanding courage. Between November 1942 and January 1943, Australian and American forces fought many bloody battles, and this experience is commemorated in the battle of exceptional resilience and unforgettable mateship. The Chinese were also evaded by the Japanese during World War II, and America came to the aid of the Chinese. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and the following day, December 8, 1941, the United States declared war on Japan. 
But continuing to occupy Chinese territory, Japan eventually surrendered in September 2, 1945, to Allied forces following the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Soviet invasion of Japanese-held Manchuria. The remaining Japanese occupation troops in China, excluding Manchuria, formally surrendered on September 9, 1945, with the following International Military Tribunal for the Far East convened on April 29, 1946. At the outcome of the Cairo Conference of November 22 to 26, 1943, the Allies of World War II decided to restrain and punish the aggression of Japan by restoring all the territories Japan annexed in China, including Manchuria, Formosa, and the Pescadores in the Republic of China, and to expel Japan from the Korean Peninsula. In the 1940s, Howard Florey, a scientist from Adelaide, South Australia, developed a way for penicillin, the world's first antibiotic, to be manufactured and processed so it could be used to treat infections in humans. Timing was fortuitous as his work led to the saving of thousands of lives during World War II, and today his groundbreaking work has saved literally millions of lives around the world. Another great invention that's helped many Australian servicemen and women during World War II was Vegemite, a rich spread in vitamin B that was developed and manufactured by Kraft Foods, formerly Fred Walker Company, from brewer's yeast. It is most commonly used as a spread on bread for sandwich. Medical professionals and baby care experts were even more recommending of Vegemite as vitamin B rich, nutritionally balanced food in their patients, and the British Medical Association endorsed it. In 1937, a limerick competition for a TV advertisement with substantial prizes, including Pontiac cars, increased the popularity of the spread. By 1942, exactly 20 years after it was first developed, the Vegemite brand had become the staple food in every Australian home and in every Australian pantry. The period of time between the two wars was a difficult one for Australia as the economy was struggling, jobs were scarce and people were starving. This period of time has become known as the Great Depression. Despite the hardship, construction forged ahead with the Sydney Harbour Bridge, 1926 to 1930, and it was a way to generate jobs, and some say the bridge was called the Iron Lung for keeping people alive during this difficult time. Shortly after World War II in 1949, the Snowy Mountain Hydroelectricity Scheme started, taking 23 years to complete in 1972. It diverted the waters of the Snowy and Tumut rivers from the Great Dividing Range westward onto the dry inland plains for irrigation and also to generate electricity. The Snowy Mountain Scheme is the largest renewable energy generator in Australia and generates 70% of renewable energy for the national electricity market. The scheme also provides water for agriculture, which has become a major export for Australia, generating billions each year in revenue. Australian farming covers 67% of the landmass of Australia and over 100,000 farmers produce enough food to feed not only our own people, but also the millions around the world pristine environment and the strict guidelines for food production has also contributed to the growth in agriculture in Australia, and our produce is high demand around the world. From crops such as wheat, the largest, barley, oats, canola, peas, maize, chickpeas, broad beans, sorghum, to livestock beef, the largest, sheep, pigs and poultry, to fruit, vegetables and nuts, and also fisheries, wine, dairy, wool, cotton, and seaweed. 
Australia has the only significant bee population in the world still free of mite that destroyed bee colonies around the world, and it is one of the last countries in the world to have bee pollination occurring naturally. According to Albert Einstein, if the bee disappears from the surface of the earth, man would have no more than four years to live. No more beans, no more pollination, no more humans. Without bees and pollination, there would be no food. The Australian government's focus is on beefing up broader protection to protect bees. Strategically placed bait hives dot the coastline and surround Australian wharves and airports and are checked regularly by beekeepers for any sign of the dreaded parasite. Swarms of foreign bees are regularly intercepted, stowing away on ships and planes. Road beekeepers have been detained at customs as they try to smuggle in queen bees inside packaging such as pen lids. Australia's strict border protection and quarantine regulations has ensured sustainability of our large agricultural export industry. Mining booms since white settlements have contributed greatly to Australia's economy and way of life. From the very early days of mining copper and silver to the gold rush and coal and iron ore of most recent times, mining and Australia's rich resources has enabled Australians to enjoy a high standard of living. The luckiest miners during the mid-1800s gold rush in Victoria unearthed fortunes and continued to do so in Western Australia in the 1800s. Miners are still striking it rich, prospecting well in the 20th century. One such Australian, Lang Hancock, a pastoralist and amateur pilot, noticed the rich iron ore in the landscape of the Turner River region, now called Hammersley Ranges, in 1952 when flying over the area. During the time, mining leases were not granted by the government, but Lang was patient, and like most entrepreneurs, he took advantage of timing, and it was perfect as consumerism was taking the world by storm with strong demand for white goods, washing machines and fridges, lawnmowers, and even the Australian invention, the Hills Hoist clothesline, all needed the steel from iron ore to be made. In 1961, the government lifted the ban on prospectors staking claims, and Lang, with the assistance of his loyal staff, staked his claim. When the actual ban had been lifted, the Lang crew had prepared well, slept out in strategic locations around the area, and Lang lit a fire signal when the pegs could actually be placed in the earth. This secured the rights to the Lang family, owning and controlling the largest iron ore deposit on earth. Lang took on a partner, his old schoolmate Peter Wright, to assist him in finding and mining the company to develop the mine. Lang and Wright did not mine the site themselves. Instead, they established a deal with Rio Tinto, a worldwide mining company, to develop the mine. Royalties are still paid to the families today. The daughter of Lang Hung Hock, Gina Reinhardt, inherited most of her father's estate, and she is a household name in Australia. There are some disputes surrounding her will due to Hancock's marriage to a much younger Filipino housekeeper. Lang's find and Rio Tinto's development of the Hammersley Ranges fueled yet another mining boom in Australia as China demanded steel to build their ever-expanding modern cities. Rio Tinto established a joint venture in Chinalco, a Chinese state-owned enterprise, in response to the high demand. Despite our prolific resource wealth in Australia, mining images simply don't appear on postcards and side visits don't exist on tourist itineraries. However, the Sydney Opera House does. It is Australia's most recognisable building and is an icon of Australia's architectural and engineering achievement. Since its completion in 1973, it has attracted worldwide acclaim for its design and construction, enhanced by its location on Benelong Point within a superb harbour setting. 
It took 16 years to build. Constructed between 1957 and 1973, it exhibits the creative genius of its designer, Pritzker Prize-winning Danish architect Jorn Utzen. External design and successful engineering by the Danish firm Ove Arup and Partners and the Australian building contractors M.R. Hornibrook, the completion of the project was overseen by architects Hall, Todd and Littlemore, and the story of its construction was one of great controversy. Complex engineering problems and escalating costs made it a source of great public debate and only subsided when the beauty and achievement of the completed building placed it on the world stage. Utzon actually quit the project before completion, but work continued on without him. Reconciliation only occurred between the parties in recent years. Utzon was inspired by the sandstone heads at the entrance to Sydney Harbour and believed that the approach of the new building should be similar, where one could look upwards only at the last minute, get a magnificent view of the harbour. This feeling of moving upwards with the white roof shells determined the shaping of the large platform or plateau which would house the performance facilities. The technical challenge of how to construct the roof sails took four years to solve. He solved this one evening whilst looking at his son's basketball and applying the geometrical concept of the basketball to the architecture of the roof. In effect, the roof sails were based on geometry of the sphere, and Utzen used this to demonstrate the creative potential and hence the assembly of prefabricated, repeated components to make it a reality in construction. The tiles were of major item in the building terms of lighting and aesthetics. Utzon's worked for 12 months developing the tiles from one of the best ceramic factories in the world, Hoganas in Sweden. Inspired by a Chinese tradition in ceramic firing for the glass-like finish, the Opera House entrance was influenced by Utzon's experience of the Mayan architecture in Mexico, where the white stairs leading to the platform, which gives the limitless view. For this reason, he made the large staircase at the Sydney Opera House 100 metres wide and created the plateau on the top to give people the feeling of liberation from daily life and being in another world. Today, the Sydney Opera House is one of the busiest performing arts centres in the world, each year staging up to 2,500 performances and events and drawing about 1.5 million patrons and attracting an estimated 4 million visitors.